This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us and welcome to this very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, the lovely, the talented, the scholarly, the woman filled with adjectives that describe her wonder, Brittany Page. Look at that. <laughs> what a way to start the show. It, it's a uh, it's good time. It is a good time. Good time. So this bonus episode is, I was going to say, a little different than what we normally do with our interviews and our, our bonus episodes. Uh, but it's not a little. It's a lot. This is completely different than... Anything we've done in the past. Yeah, for sure. We've been talking about it for the past couple months that we were going to be moderating a debate between Michael Shermer, Dr. Douglas Navrick, and Dr. Ryan Nichols from Mm -hmm. Cal State University Fullerton, Brittany's alma mater, and it happened. Yeah. It happened on the 19th, on Thursday. (laughs) Thursday. Yeah. The day after Wednesday, the day directly before Friday. Oh. (laughs) So we did. I think everything was it was a good time, other than uh, Cal State University Fullerton's inability to give us microphones that would retain a charge. Yeah, it was a little bit of a problem. We, me and you, were sharing a mic already. Already, kind of a bummer. Yeah, and then because we don't like to share microphones, Brittany. No, we need our own (laughs) microphones. We can't share. That's right. We we both have things to say. At different times. Yeah. Sometimes which makes that problematic. Some, like right now, sometimes simultaneously. Yes. <laughs> so uh, everyone uh, on the panel had their own microphone as well until... To start with. They started dying. Yeah. Um, the and, microphones, not the panelists. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the microphones. Thank you. <laughs> so as the microphones were losing their charge, we started to have to juggle the mics and... Yeah, yeah. We had to give up our microphone, and so we were without a microphone. So it it was kind of a debacle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean not terrible. No. Well, it, it was just amateur hour, briefly, at certain times. Yeah. Not any fault of our own, because you know us, highly professional individuals <laughs> who only run the tightest ship, mm-hmm. tip top shape. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Yeah. So listen, I know there's going to be a lot of new listeners out there. We would love to, for you to take the time to subscribe to the show. This is not primarily what we do, this kind of a thing, but it was a great opportunity and we certainly had a great time. Uh, our show is a news and comment, moving the conversation forward on a twice weekly basis, talking about issues that are very important, I believe, to our not just our country, but our, our global community mm-hmm. as a whole. And we would love to have you join our family listening to the show, 
uh, calling in 657-464-7609. Or, of course, our listeners often email in a voice memo from their smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. We are also planning on having Dr. Douglas Navrick on again. Yeah. And Michael Shermer. Yeah, Shermer's going to come back on once his, uh, well, come back on. He's going to come on the show once his uh, book gets released. Yes. And talk about his new book, which really sounds super interesting. Yeah, so. so those are bonus episodes to look forward to. Absolutely. So if you have questions based on what you're getting ready to hear, Send them in. Mm-hmm. I just dropped the phone number. I'm not going to do it again um, because that's not how I operate, Brittany. I'm yeah. uh, I'm like a pouty toddler. <laughs> you heard it already. <laughs> I'm not going to say it again. So anyway, we love you guys. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. On with the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Frank. I'm part of the Cal State Fullerton chapter of the Psychi. International Society for Psychology Students. Uh, I'll be introducing the panelists for tonight's discussion, but first I would like to give two thanks. I would like to thank all of you for coming out tonight to see this debate this evening. I'm sure you're going to have a wonderful time, and you'll be telling your children about it for many years to come. I'd also like to thank the organizers for allowing Saikai to have the honor of hosting tonight's event. So before I introduce these legends of academia, these mavericks of modern thought, uh, I'm going to ask all of you to please hold your applause until we meet all of them. So Brittany Page and Jesse Dollimore, they are the hosts of the twice-weekly news and comments program called I doubt it with Dollamore. You can find it anywhere you find podcasts. They will be moderating tonight's discussion and making sure that it does not turn into too much of a bloodbath. <laughs> Dr. Michael Shermer, the gentleman right in the middle, is the founder of the Skeptic Society, the creator of Skeptics Magazine, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches you guessed it, Skepticism 101. <laughs> he is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, such as Why People Believe Weird Things, The Science of Good and Evil, and most recently, The Moral Arc. He is also an, an alumnus of Cal State Fullerton. In fact, he is a former student of Dr. Douglas Naverick, the gentleman on the left. Dr. Naverick is an experimental psychologist and a professor at Cal State Fullerton. He has published a couple of well-known articles in Skeptic Magazine, including The God Construct and The Three Shades of Atheism. He, his current research focuses on how behavioral processes influence our choices. Specifically, he examines how people make complex moral decisions based on their intuitions, and how an action can feel so right yet so wrong at the same time, creating a sense of moral ambivalence. Dr. Ryan Nichols, the gentleman on the right, is a professor of philosophy at Cal State Fullerton who believes that most scholarly introductions function to prime audiences to induce them to commit fallacies of authority. <laughs> I believe that's some philosophy humor. It kind of goes over my head. He is 
suffice to say, he has a PhD. He has edited a couple of books, and he is. He has held some academic research fellowships. He is an interdisciplinary researcher. He is a full-time, currently enrolled student at Cal State Fullerton, and he is not really sure what he is an expert of. <laughs> he loves Gus Grissom Park, the John Templeton Foundation, but he does not claim to represent their views tonight. And he really enjoys riding motorcycles and learning new things. Now, before I pass it along to the moderators, let's give them all a big round of applause. So first of all, because we are super professional, let me turn their mics on and give them to them. That's important. One for you. And Should I narrate since this is also going to be a podcast? That's right. So this, this is being broadcast or will be broadcast on a podcast. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming out. Thank you so much. This is an overwhelming turnout. I'm, I'm super thrilled. If there is a seat next to you and someone needs that seat and if that seat's not reserved legitimately, not for your purse or your coat... Um, Let's get cozy. Let's get friendly and uh, get to know one another. It's going to be a good night. So uh, if you're in the back, you want a seat, raise your hand if there's a seat next to you that needs to be filled. Yeah, and there's the floor too. No lighters. (laughs) All right. Well, good. Um, Other than that, is that it? So we're going to be passing this mic back and forth, and that's important to note for the podcast as well, because uh, you have to talk into it to hear. Okay. So our basic question tonight is the following. What is the role of science in helping us understand what is right and wrong? Or does science even have a role? The panel will debate claims in recent books that science has, in fact, discovered objective moral principles. Absolute principles that would point in the direction of true virtue on anyone's moral compass. And that this has been accomplished purely within a naturalistic framework, without the assumption of any divine creator or guidance by any religious ideology or philosophy. Dr. Shermer is the author of one of these books, The Moral Arc, which will be our focus this evening, along with his recent article in the journal Theology and Science, entitled Scientific Naturalism, A Manifesto for Enlightenment and Humanism. Additional books along these lines are The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris and Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. Our goal tonight is to have a free exchange of ideas among everyone here. That includes the panelists and the audience. So it's really important that during their opening statements, during the exchanges among the panelists, that if something comes to mind that you want to know more about, you make a note in your memory or write it down and be ready to ask a question when that time comes. All right. So how this is going to work tonight, uh, first we're going to have an opening statement from each of our panelists of up to 10 minutes. Um, I am the bully timekeeper. We, gentlemen, there will be a Timer there to check, and I will have to go back and grab the little ding bell, or I'll just scream, hey, you got a minute before you're done. Um, 
They will be answering or taking a position on the following motion. Science can determine moral values of right and wrong. Then we're going to set aside a period of about 15 minutes for them to kind of freeform, mix it up peacefully. Like Frank said, no bloodbath. And following that, there will be a 40-minute um, question and answer from both knuckleheads like me and wonderful, loving individuals like you at this microphone right here. So, um, there was going to be volunteers from Saikai, but we have a stationary mic, so that is not necessary. Um, after the question and answer, to close the discussion, each one of these gentlemen will have three minutes, or up to three minutes, to give their final statements, including whether or not they have changed their minds about their position that they walked in with. Oh, I already know I'm not going to. <laughs> So, uh, timekeeper, without further ado, we are going to start with Dr. Shermer. Thank you. So, uh, I really appreciate you inviting me here and, and taking my ideas seriously enough to actually read the book. I'm always amazed when people read my book. Uh, I always say when they say, I read your book, so you're the one. <laughs> uh, so, I'm, I'm, I am grateful for that. And I realized when I was making notes for tonight that this is 40 years ago, I entered Doug Navrick's lab to work and uh, it was Doug who taught me to teach, uh, think as a scientist. And at the time, I was an evangelical Christian, and by the time I left his lab, I was an atheist. So uh, I'll let you be the judge of whether that was a good thing or not. Or more to the point, if I'm wrong, I guess God can judge us both. <laughs> All the good people will be there at the other place, you know. My friends Hitch and so on. Anyway, uh, so I'm a moral realist, and, and I will defend the moral realist position tonight. Uh, how, how do we know what's right and wrong? So I'll start with Abraham Lincoln, who said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. And since I wrote a book about the Holocaust, denying history, I, I would add to that. If the Holocaust is not wrong, nothing is wrong. And, and, and by wrong, I mean really wrong. Not just, in my opinion, it's wrong. Or in our Western culture, slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. But in some other culture, it, it's perfectly good. Uh, perfectly just, perfectly justified, or some other moral universe where this would make sense or it would be logical for all parties involved. So it's my hypothesis that just as, as, as we could back it with science, so I'm going to start with the physical sciences. And just as Galileo and Newton discovered physical laws and principles about the natural world that are really out there, uh, so too have social scientists discovered natural laws and, and moral laws that are well, I don't want to say out there. They're in there. They're in, in our minds, in, in our brains, in our human nature. Just as it was inevitable that the astronomer Johannes Kepler would discover that planets have elliptical orbits, given that he was making accurate astronomical measurements, and given that planets really do travel in ellipses, he could hardly have discovered anything else. Scientists studying political, economic, social, and moral subjects will discover certain things that are true. For example, democracies are better than autocracies. Market economies are superior to command economies. Torture and death penalty do not curb crime. Burning women as witches is an idiotic idea. Women are too weak and emotional to run companies or countries is also an idiotic idea. And that blacks do not like being slaves and that Jews do not want to be exterminated. Now, why don't blacks want to be slaves? And why don't Jews want to be exterminated? 
Well, first of all, you can ask them, and they will tell you. Not like, oh, in my opinion, I don't want to be exterminated. I really actually don't want to be exterminated. Really, in a real moral universe as real as elliptical orbits. So the way I derive that is just from human nature. It's in our nature to struggle to survive and flourish and reproduce that other part of evolution. Uh, and, and, and that's just part of who we are. It, it really begins with the survival and flourishing of sentient beings. So sentience is, is really our, our grounding point there. And, and sentient, individual sentient beings. Um, and so I say beings, so it's not just people. Obviously, there's also animals that are sentient, and we should expand our moral considerations to those as well. So any organism subject to natural selection, I argue, is going to have this desire built into its nature to survive and flourish. So it begins with, really with, it begins with the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. So the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of life, is to push up the gradient of energy to push back against entropy. And you do that as cells by consuming energy from the sun or wherever, and then uh, generating self-replicating molecules. So it really begins with Doc- Dawkins' thought experiment of the selfish gene. And this is an unfortunate title because a lot of people read the book by the title and they don't read the book. Uh, you know, genes aren't thinking anything. They're not selfish. Genes are just replicating molecules. But it begins with uh, building a structure that enables you to uh, maintain uh, in, in perpetuity your existence. And self-replicating uh, molecules that don't self-replicate to do that don't survive. So the genes are immortal the bodies that house the genes are mortal. And, and so it's their goal, as it were. It's their telos. Their you know, ultimate purpose in life is to push back against entropy, go up, up the energy gradient. And by doing that, you have to consume energy and get resources and so on. Now, it could be that the best thing you can do is to always be selfish in a behavioral way and, and consume all the resources around you, including the other... Um, self-replicating molecules in their bodies. The problem is, is they, they're going to make the same calculation as you, and you could be consumed by them. So oftentimes, the most selfish thing you can do is to be cooperative, to be altruistic, to be uh, reciprocally altruistic, to, be, um, to, to sort of practice non-zero uh, win-win exchanges with other uh, survival machines. And, and in that way, the best way to perpetrate your genes into the future is to be moral. And, it, and it's not enough. And by moral, I mean really moral. Like you really believe it. You really feel it. Because um, it's not enough to fake being a, a cooperator, to pretend to be a good friend, because we've also evolved cheater detection devices. We can tell when somebody's being phony. You, you know when people are are jacking you around and they're not genuine. You know when somebody's a, a genuine friend. We, we're good at this. And so my argument is that evolution vouchsafed to us emotions that, in which we feel real uh, moral consideration for others. I mean, not always. You know, we have inner, inner demons and better angels that are always in competition, but <clears throat> the problem of evil is a different, slightly different one. So, um, so from there, then we can build... Uh, the idea that there's real moral emotions. These emotions that we have, emotions evolved to as proxies to drive behavior, to get organisms to behave in a certain way. 
Uh, or consider this analogy from mathematics made by uh, the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, that, that um, moral truths, they don't instantiate like the, um, you know, the mass of a particle or the, the, the gravitational pull of a planet. Uh, but, but they're more like platonic truths uh, that most scientists agree exist. For example, uh, from Pinker. On this analogy, we're born with a rudimentary concept of number. But as soon as we build on it with formal mathematical reasoning, the nature of mathematical reality forces us to discover some truth and not others. No one who understands the concept of two, the concept of four, and the concept of addition can come to any conclusion but that two plus two equals four. Perhaps we're born with a rudimentary moral sense, and as soon as we build on it with moral reasoning, the nature of moral reality focuses us, forces us to some conclusions but not others. For example, uh, the non-zero exchange between two uh, survival machines naturally leads, once they begin thinking, to reason their way to, uh, instead of me killing you to take your stuff, and me worrying about you making the same, same calculation. I don't mean to point to you because you're a big, burly guy, but, <laughs> but you get my point. I, I, I'm going to be as worried about you as you're worried about me, so wouldn't it be better if we reasoned our way and said, let's cooperate. I'll give you this, and you give me that, and we, and we exchange. And we're both better off being alive than dead. So that's, from there we can start to build uh, you know, moral principles. Now, the details may vary depending on which cultures, but the... The emotion of feeling guilt or pride or feeling shame or jealousy or, or, or whatever, those are, are, are culturally independent. They, they exist in there regardless, like language. You're all going to learn a language, which one depends on where you're We can all feel guilty about something, depends on what the culture tells us to feel guilty about. So now I have to address one more thing here in my last minute, and that, and that is most scientists and philosophers say... Um, you can't derive an ought from an is. So I need to address that real quick. Um, so w- when Hume said that, he, he, he meant something like, if war is common in nature... Uh, battery went down. Okay, battery. Oh, boy, I smoked that thing. <laughs> Some hot words there. Uh, if, if, um, uh, so let's say war is natural. It's the way things are. Therefore, we ought to have wars. No, I don't mean that. I, I mean the nature of war itself, by understanding its true causes, its nature, then, then we can figure out what we ought to do to attenuate it. Why ought we to do that? Because we don't want to die. We want to survive and flourish in wars, murders, homicides, and violence, and so forth. Uh, it, it, it lessens that propensity to, to, to be able to survive and flourish. So. Um, it, it's, I think it's one of these memes that's just caught on, and people just repeat it. You know, but, but, but Hume, uh, but, but if you read Hume, he says you have to have a reason for making that shift from is to ought. So to that I say, Mr. Hume, tear down this wall. <laughs> All right, Dr. Navrick, taking your position on the motion, science can determine moral values of right and wrong. Okay, well, first let me say that I'm really thrilled to have this chance to share ideas that I've been incubating over the last few years. They seem to be crystallizing now. On that question, I would say, basically, I disagree that science can answer our questions about right and wrong. But I would also say I agree. And I disagree if we 
uh, dogmatically rule out any possibility that science can investigate possible supernatural influences on natural processes, as assumed by scientific naturalism. Uh, however, I agree that science can help us determine objective and absolute moral uh, values uh, if we are prepared to keep an open mind and follow the evidence wherever it leads. As a starting point, we need to come to grips with the understanding that nature in itself has no moral content to it. Uh, if you see yourself as a part of nature, and if you believe that nature is all there is, then nothing we do is right or wrong. It just is. And you can see the, uh, the implications of being consistent. If we consider the most recent uh, horror, the shooting in Las uh, Vegas, would you say that hurricanes uh, Marie, Irma, Harvey did anything wrong? Well, if you're consistent, you would also have to say that the shooter in Las Vegas did nothing wrong. Uh, these were all just destructive acts of nature without any moral content to them. And yes, it feels different, uh, but our moral feelings and our sentiments and what we say about them in naturalistic terms are just natural processes in themselves. Yes, the shooter differed from the hurricanes in that the shooter had the intention to kill. But that's a distinction without a difference because in psychology, intention would be uh, a construct uh, that represents a cognitive process. And cognitive processes are viewed in psychology as natural processes that follow principles of cause and effect. So the intentions of the shooter uh, were um, caused and can be understood just as the directions taken by these hurricanes uh, were caused and can be understood. To see um, the problems of assuming science can tell us what is right and wrong, let's apply some principles proposed by uh, Michael and the atheistic author Sam Harris um, to the question of abortion. And specifically, do, does a fetus have any moral claim to protection from abortion? Now, Michael's basic principle that he maintains uh, science has discovered is uh, that we're obligated to maximize 
the uh, flourishing and survival of sentient beings. And Sam Harris has a similar principle that uh, we need to maximize the well-being of conscious creatures. So consciousness or sentience are said to be basic moral considerations. So what would that imply for the moral rights of a fetus? Uh, by the age of seven months, uh, probably they would uh, have the capacity for consciousness based on patterns of brain waves across their um, two halves of the cortex. Uh, sentience could begin earlier, about five months. So if we applied these principles, uh, they would say that the earliest that a fetus would have a moral claim to protection from abortion would be five months. And it's said, this is a discovery made by science. Science can tell us about the potential for consciousness and sentience in a developing fetus. But can it tell us what the moral rights of a fetus are? Is this a discovery that a five-month-old fetus has a moral claim to protection, but a four-month or three-month-old fetus does not? It's a subjective preference, not uh, a discovery of science. In the Declaration of Independence, an important distinction is made uh, between laws of nature and nature's God. Uh, the founders, like other Enlightenment uh, philosophers were believers in a creator. It wasn't natural laws that gave us our moral rights, but rather uh, the creator of those laws um, from which we got our unalienable um, rights to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To get beyond description, uh, to get beyond is in the terminology of the is-ought problem, we need to place a construct of intention before is. In that case, what was intended is and ought to be, and therefore would be an objective moral virtue. On the other hand, what is would not necessarily be intended. In other words, you can't go in the reverse direction. That's the naturalistic fallacy. But if there was some way to conceptualize uh, a process of intent before uh, a natural process, then that natural process would be an, uh, an objective moral virtue and could provide uh, guidelines for moral judgments. In an article in Skeptic uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, outlined a construct um, of intention in the framework of the question of how life originated. And I referred to it as a God construct and I framed the issue of two competing hypotheses. Either life started as a result of random processes 
or it started as a result of intention. The evidence actually points more towards intention than towards random processes. But what would be the advantage of considering the possibility that life had um, a willed origin rather than a random origin? What would be the value added? The value added is that it would give us a basis for inferring objective moral uh, values. Let me illustrate this quickly with the concept of self-actualization, which is fundamental in uh, humanistic theories. So Michael's version of it is to maximize the survival and flourishing of sentient beings. But if life was willed, then the implications would be that um, the cells that originally emerged uh, would um, have naturally a propensity to uh, grow, um, diversify, and fulfill a genetic potential. And that is a fundamental concept in humanistic theory. Uh, Carl Rogers' self-actualization, which originates from Kurt Goldstein's concept. And uh, I'll have a few more things to say about uh, self-actualization as uh, our discussion continues. Thank you, Dr. Navrick. And now it is time for Dr. Nichols to present his position on the resolution, Science Can Determine Moral Values of Right and Wrong. Thanks. I can't sit still for an hour and a half. I'll just stop now. Um, <clears throat> never been able to. So I had a couple of um, points. One is scientific. One is scientific. One is philosophical. First, I really enjoyed Dr. Shermer's book, uh, For Sale Out, Out Back There. Um, I learned a lot about a lot of different things, exposed to many new studies. Um, and... Um, I, would you allow me to have this pretense that I have a view from nowhere? I might have my own cognitive biases, but I'd rather not show you what those are and instead just be a free thinker with me for a few minutes about the science and its study of morality. Um, so first, first point is, uh, is one in the weeds. I'm going to ask you to follow me through, and then we'll end up on a mountainside with another story at the end of my remarks. So first, um, Dr. Sherman uses many scientific studies to argue that uh, that morality is explicable by science. Um, one of them, many of them, are focused on altruism. Many of them are not focused on altruism. So, by altruism, as Dr. Shermer illustrated, we're talking about a situation in which um, individuals are sacrificing themselves uh, or their own interests, their resources, for other people, often strangers. That's that's sort of the pinnacle of morality. Merely cooperating when it's in my narrow self-interest is something less than that. That's morality light. When it comes to scientific studies of altruism, one stood out from Dr. Shermer's book, Joe Henrik, 2010, um, in which he shows that hunter-gatherer societies that are present-day hunter-gatherer societies that they found in far-flung corners of the earth um, tend to be very um, non-altruistic as compared to modern secular societies. And that's evidence to think that secular government is the best way to morality. Um, so these, these studies work like this. They use a dictator game. And the version uh, that's at use here, it's, it, we can work with it in this simplistic way. You're, imagine that you're given $21 bills, and you're told, these are your $21 bills. Um, there's an anonymous playing partner, and you may give some money to that other person. Uh, <clears throat> anything else, you keep. 
So researchers then look at how much you give. turns out that hunter-gatherer societies only give 25% of their dictator game allotment, whereas modern secular societies give as much as 45%. Okay. Um, so a few problems with Dr. Shermer's use of that study and problems with the study are, are as follows. First, um, in the book version, at least, Dr. Shermer uh, misquotes the article. Um, and it might be somewhat important that that happens. I only read one background article that he used in the, in the book, so I can't tell you what, what happens with other articles he's using. But that concerned me a bit. Um, not only that, but the study had, uh, had 15 groups of 15 small-scale hunter-gatherer scavenger societies, and the study's authors duplicated one set of the data so that they actually ran the, ver- the version that Dr. Shermer uses was published where two of the small-scale societies' data was identical. They copy and paste it over. It happens, I guess, even to the best of them. Now, Joe's at Harvard University, no less. But, um, w- but not noticing the erratum in that study published in science um, is a concern when we're, we're still trying to make inferences from that. But more importantly, I suppose, there's some, some additional information surrounding that study that is of a concern that may lead to the questions about how the, the extent to which science can explain morality using economic games. So consider a recent, uh, sort of not exactly a replication, but another dictator game. So these people wanted to do this um, in a place without much morality in a very secular society, and where else to go but Sin City. They station themselves at the Las Vegas bus station, and they, they run a dictator game with, with uh, casino chips, a dollar apiece. So one experimenter, Winking and Miser, uh, 2013, if you're curious. So one of them is boarding a bus station. He says, <clears throat> excuse me there, man. Uh, ma'am, I got 20, 20, coin, 20 uh, chips here, and you can, you can keep all of them yourself. Uh, and, and afterwards, they simply watch whether she gives these away or not. That's the first study. Zero altruism. Second study. In other words, no one gave, none of their participants gave any chips to anyone. The second version of the study, very similar, <clears throat> um, similar <laughs> a similar voice to this actor, too. Um, Excuse me there, feller. Uh, I, got 20, I got 20 chips right here. I'm leaving town. I can't use them elsewhere, so they're yours. Now, look over there yonder in that man in the phone booth. He might need some. So at that point, they also, they also look at whether or not uh, the person gave any away, and did he? Uh, zero. Nothing was given. The, the third condition, however, was different. In this condition, they went full metal experiment, experimentalist on them. So they had them sign an IRB form. They pre-gamed to make sure they understood. They did comprehension checks. They factored for collusion. They had them sign IRB forms. Then maybe they wore a white coat, too. Well, doubt it. <clears throat> but you get the point. Now, guess what happens when you approach someone in a Las Vegas train, uh, bus station and you give them that full experimental treatment? Excuse me. We are experimenting on you. Um, when that happens, they are responsive to the prime. Now, they're being watched. And that's the cue to morality, folks. Uh, it's morality light, though. That's the difference. So this leads to uh, my, my second philosophical point. Um, uh, <clears throat> but I want to add, in addition, there's a bunch of evidence about the positive relationship between gods, high gods in particular, and morality um, in this particular study that Dr. Shermer mentions, but in passing. And I mean, it's really hard to do these, these studies. There are flaws with the study. It's really hard to write about them. We all have lots of cognitive biases that twist us in ways that we don't even understand. I'm certainly gifted in cognitive biases. Um, but on the other hand, um, in this case, the, Dr. Sherman mentions there was a modest effect of world religion. Now, in the hunter-gatherer societies, they had two world religions represented, Islam and Christianity. It turns out that people in Islam and Christianity uh, were very generous, more so than secular people. In addition, there was a market integration, a trading function. That also predicted rates of altruism. Anyway, to the philosophical point. 
Sorry, I'm rushing, but I have 10 minutes. I can see the clock right here. Uh, So um, the philosophical point follows from this. So I'm I'm arguing that that morality light, um, which may often be the subject of what we talk about up here, is is something less than morality, Whereas, whereas morality is honestly on the inside. So in lots of correlational studies where we look at, so, so for example, secular societies, commit, people in secular societies commit fewer murders than people in non-secular societies. Okay. But notice, is that because they're, doing, they're not committing murders because they're really, truly moral people? Well, there's a story that uh, was set in the Gr- mountains in Greece. Uh, Plato writes about this in the Republic. So there's a shepherd. He has his flock. And all of a sudden, in this mountain, he sees a crevasse. He goes down and slides down this tunnel. And at the bottom, there is a treasure. On a skeleton, he finds a ring, and he throws the ring on his own finger, turns it, and he is, he is invisible. Okay? Now, once he's invisible, um, things begin to happen. But wait. Before he found the ring, it's not as though he was an especially immoral guy. If the, so the, the correlational studies that Dr. Shermer and others might cite about this would pit, put this shepherd, his name is Gyges, in the moral camp. He didn't do anything that bad. He didn't murder anybody. Uh, but... Um, but he's not necessarily moral. The ring is not what makes him moral or immoral. Um, maybe he was moral, bef- immoral before that. What happens when he gets the ring is he rapes the queen, kills the king, and takes the hell over. Now, <clears throat> in this situation, what have we learned? The reason Plato starts with this profound story, and by the way, if I have a minute for a soapbox, I'll hop right on there and tell you why the Lord of the Rings messes this up entirely. Um, <clears throat> still bothers me, but um, the reason Plato starts the story with this is because he's being challenged. Look, his, his, Glaucon, Thrasymachus, these characters with great proper names, say, Plato, there is no morality. There's no mor- All you are, you're, you're watched and you're obedient. You give socially desirable responses, but there's no real morality because as soon as you're away from other people's watchful eyes, you're going to do what you want to do. Um, and that's what Gyges does in this story. That's what maybe we do. But notice... Here's the bigger picture and the bigger challenge to this question about does science explain morality. When we look at broad correlational population level studies to show, to show these relationships, we're missing the point that there's a big confound. In modern secular societies, let's, see, let's play spot the CCTV cameras, okay? Um, <clears throat> so we are surrounded by cameras. We're surrounded by, we're carrying our phones around. We're being watched through our phones. Uh, how many people in here put tape over their, their uh, camera, camera on their, their... Okay, I didn't need hands, but yes. Many people do. Many people are... Do, whether you're skeptical about the government or you're just afraid someone is watching you, being watched it has never been... T- to be a watcher of people has never been better. Um, but that doesn't mean that the reason that you're not going to steal the purse of the person sitting next to you is because you're a 100% moral person. I, mean, I really believe in you, folks. Um, we're, we're right here at Cal State Fullerton. Of course, you're good folks. But on the other hand, you might have selfish motivations for some of that, right? You might not want to go to jail for the rest of your life. Don't confuse that selfish motivation with being moral. To be real moral, really moral is not to look at that kind of correlational data. It's to look at individual relationships. How does this, what's, what are the internal states? And Dr. Shermer was gesturing at that in, in the latter part of his comments. I think that's really important. Um, but notice here now we're talking about altruists. And we already saw some methodological problems with altruism earlier. So there are a couple studies about this. The John Templeton Foundation funded a study. Well, one of them ended up showing that religious kids were in fact less. John Desati from University of Chicago, I believe, was showing that religious kids are actually more selfish and less altruistic. But other studies were looking at moral heroes, people who sacrificed their lives for other people. You know the guy in the subway who jumps down there to save the kid who fell right before the train's approaching? Um, studying those people are great, are great 
are great ways science can reach this question, does it explain morality? But until we understand their profoundly unusual motivations, it hasn't. Thank you, gentlemen, for being, uh, not having to get tackled for going over time. That's awesome. <laughs> so now we're going to start the 15-minute the period between all of you, gentlemen, and I'm going to have to, since we have one man down over here in the form of a microphone, we are going to make do. And uh, there you go. Thanks. 15 minutes. So you're going to interact with one another, take on each other's positions, and I think Dr. Shermer, you want to go first? Let's see what yeah, okay. Kind of yep, on sure. So, uh, um, I think we still have a dead battery. Are they may, it might time out. You might have to. Oh, uh, I can reboot. There we go. Okay. Okay. We're good. We're good. Uh, all right. So I'll just in- initially just make a few comments to uh, each of the gentlemen's. Opening statements. I think uh, Ryan, the I'm, I'm not. I, I was not aware the Heinrich um, study had been critiqued, but uh, I know it's been replicated, and, and similar results, percentages of generosity, and so on, have been found. Um, in any case, I, I think the ultimatum game is a better pro, uh, uh, paradigm than the dictator game. The ulti- ultimatum game. There's an exchange between two people, and they can build up trust, or build up a relationship, or build up some kind of uh, moral feelings, like this person was generous to me, so I'll be generous back to them, which is, a, I think, a better match of how the real world works uh, in terms of what even constitutes something that's moral. If you're by yourself just throwing coins out um, it, without any consequences one way or the other, that's not really a moral issue. Um, that's why I don't like the dictator game that much. In any case, what those studies show, I think, is that w- we have a capacity for moral uh, emotions for moral generosity and so on. That, those are the better angels, and we also have the inner demons, as so in, in Pinker's apt metaphor. The whole point of a civil society is to tilt the incentives, to bring out, to to accentuate the inner, uh, the better angels and attenuate the inner demons, and we we have a pretty good idea of how to do that, like being watched, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to be watched or judged or something. Uh, you become more moral. And, and it's not that that's some kind of artificial thing. The propensity to be moral is in there, and the tilting the incentives through laws, tax uh, programs and incentives to be more generous by giving you a tax break, those sorts of things we've figured out, the so-called choice architecture, uh, really works. To but, but it wouldn't work if we weren't naturally inborn, innate, really moral beings. Uh, none of those things would work. And so the whole point of a civil society is to, uh, is to create a choice architecture that makes us more moral. Now, what do I mean by more moral? That's the question on the table tonight. What's the metric we're using? And, and I think the great moral philosophers have figured this out. It, it's basically the principle of uh, interchangeable perspectives, that I can't claim that I have a special position in the universe just because I happen to be sitting in the most important chair in the universe because I'm sitting in it and expect you to take me seriously. Uh, I have to appeal to you and your values and what you care about to get you to care about me. And, and this is the basis of Hobbes's and Locke's uh, social contract of, of a Kant's categorical imperative of, uh, of, um, of, um, the, the, the expanding moral sphere, uh, moral circle, uh, uh, not Pink, Peter Singer, 
Um, and uh, Spinoza's uh, View from Nowhere. Uh, it's a John Rawls' original position. You don't know which position you're going to be in society, so you have to design a law that, that uh, covers everybody because you might be in, the, in, in one category or the other. So, and that's, of course, the golden rule. I think that's have, that has been discovered over and over and over again because it's really there. In the same way that Kepler could not discover anything but elliptical orbits, Philosophers and scientists would inevitably discover that this principle of interchangeable perspectives, the golden rule, whatever you want to call it, is really there, really there. It's not out there like a, a, the mass of a particle. It's in here. Anyway, so that's my thoughts on that. Okay. May I interject? You, you, go, ahead, uh, go ahead, and then I'll... Me well, um, so in your book you mentioned... You, you, I mean, theories of, ethical theories usually have two parts, a theory of obligation and a theory of values. And uh, Dr. Shermer mentions in his book... Uh, natural rights theory and consequentialism uh, as theories of obligation and also you know Peter Singer comes up there too but um, to say that it's really there is real is, is I find awkward um, or maybe I don't understand that I mean I think Doug was Doug was voicing this point that uh, nature has no moral value intrinsically um, and if it does we might attribute it uh, more moral value but it's not there so when we if you know you believe that people have natural rights, uh, but if I get out my rightsometer, <clears throat> beep 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 beep, you know, there is no such thing. Um, we don't have we don't have one, and I can't imagine science proving that people have natural rights. Um, that's uh, that seems strange to me. Well, you could but ask the affected person. You know, ask an African American, do you th- do you want to be enslaved? They'll tell you. So, what did you just measure there? Oh, is, yeah. it, is it just some opinion? Well, in my opinion, is it... Right. I, I, maybe I'll flip it over to Doug, because I think y- okay. your point applies right here. It is just an opinion. Really? Yeah. You can't say... You cannot say slavery is really wrong. All you can say is, it's just my opinion that it's wrong. Somebody no. else may think it's great, and we're all equal. No, sorry. I think you're misunderstanding me. Your thesis was that science explains morality. And I, I completely agree that slavery is wrong. But why? You're but suggesting... Why? Wait, wait, Why? You're, Why is it wrong? You're suggesting that science is explaining morality. And I'm asking you, how does science show that slavery is wrong? And all you're telling me is, look, go read Rawls or look at Peter Singer or talk about natural rights. Those aren't scientific arguments. That has nothing to do with science. But your thesis well, is science explains morality. Just mention, uh, as a researcher in moral judgment, uh, I'd like to just emphasize that no one uh, doing research on moral judgment uh, makes a claim that they're finding out what really is the right or the wrong thing to do. They're just describing the kinds of moral judgments people make when facing complex uh, dilemmas. Um, Often these are studied in the context of would you kill one person to save the lives of a number of other people? And no researcher is saying uh, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. They're just describing the factors that influence people's judgments. On the question of uh, morality in nature, uh, the only way out of the isot problem is up. There has to be something beyond nature to give it moral force. There has to be some intention placed before is in order for is to have any moral value. And a starting point would be uh, recent findings that uh, all life forms that have evolved over the last four billion years 
originated from one uh, type of cell. It's referred to as LUCA, L-U-C-A, the last universal common ancestor. And it uh, is established through uh, genetic analyses. And it comes very close to what uh, Darwin uh, referred to as life originating from some one uh, primordial form. If you look at the evidence that this original population of cells that gave rise to all subsequent life forms was willed, was intended, the evidence is quite strong. I outline it in my articles in in Skeptic, but uh, basically... Uh, chemists have yet to show that they can create a living cell from something that is not already alive. A fundamental principle of biology is biogenesis. Life comes from life. And it's just an assumption that biologists typically make that the first cell came from a random combination of uh, organic compounds. So let's just consider the implication if that first population of cells, LUCA, last universal common ancestor, was intended, then it was also intended that life forms uh, grow, uh, diversify, uh, fulfill their potential. That would be an objective moral good. And it's also... Uh, a fundamental principle in humanistic theories. Uh, It's most commonly uh, known in the context of Carl Rogers' uh, theories, humanistic theories and his approach to therapy, uh, person-centered therapy. Can I ask you a question at this point? Yeah. Um, Is that... Yeah. I just don't... I don't want to interrupt, but we only have five left. Yeah. yeah. So so you said that... If, uh, if we found a last common ancestor was the product of an intention yeah. of a supernatural or non-human agent, then it would, it would lead to moral outcomes. We would know that certain things were certain, better or worse or right, right or wrong. Right. Why? I mean, because so, so it was, part, let me set that question up if I may. Yeah. So we, we, many people believe in all kinds of different gods, but what, of what use is that? I mean, so the, to go back to ancient Greece and Plato, right? Polytheism. The gods are, are, have very different views about what is right and wrong. They're fighting with one another. Why th- and if, even if we shift to monotheism, which was which a, which a, a big deal in the development of a unitary moral theory, that doesn't help us because we know that God changes his mind. So why on earth would you con- con- conclude that if there's a universal ancestor caused by a deity, then that it, from, it, from it follows that there is morality, especially since that deity uh, in, in has the, led to all kinds of... I mean, evolution is the worst thing ever, right? Because it the, kills all kinds of people and does so terribly. Right. Now, we have to distinguish between natural processes that were intended and natural processes that were not intended. And analyzing intent in terms of this first uh, population of cells helps us make this distinction. What uh, uh, aspects of that initial life form have uh, persisted? And but, but Doug, I, th- I think you made my point in your statement that these first cells have intention built into them. That's what natural selection does. It, these self-replicating molecules have an intention. It's their purpose. Like the purpose of a star is to convert hydrogen into helium. That's its goal in life. 
and, and so we can scale up from there. And, and let me address, you brought up the trolley problem. I, I will say which the right, what the right answer is, uh, even though most moral philosophers that study this don't. So you know the trolley problem. It's going to kill the five workers unless you divert it down the track and it kills the one worker. Okay, so almost everybody says, yeah, I would divert it. And if you change it where you have to shove the guy off a bridge to, to, to stop the trolley, you know, less people do it because it's more visceral. Okay, so that has implications for you know, our moral intention and how involved we are. But if we change the dynamic and say, okay, so a doctor has five dying patients in five ORs and he has one healthy patient in the waiting room, would you uh, agree that it's okay for him to kill the one healthy patient to save the five patients? No, and if you did, you'd be uh, convicted for murder because you don't want, we don't want to live in a society where at any moment you walking down the street can be plucked out and murdered just because somebody's decided that you can save five people. We, we have, over the course of several centuries, decided that the autonomy of the individual trumps the group benefits. And the reason for that is because this is what leads to genocide. That you know, if it's okay to kill five, kill one to save five, you can kill one million to save five million, and so forth. And so, and we don't want to live in that society. It's not a healthy society, as judged by this moral foundation. Where we start. Let's take it back to the. Your, so this goes back to my criticism. So you say in your book, quote, "Reason and the principle of interchangeable perspectives puts morals on a par with scientific discoveries than cultural. More on a par with scientific discoveries than cultural conventions." Um, but even in that case, uh, yeah, so maybe 80, 90 people out of 100 would agree with you. Let's not, let's not kill the, the living to, to uh, bring back someone who's on the verge of death. But how does science prove that? That's, that's, the, that's the leg well, in your argument. I do yeah, not I guess, like yeah, okay, say so that. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. When I use the word science, I also mean reason and philosophy. I'm not one of these scientists that says philosophy is dead. Uh, you know, philosophy is the foundation of all of science. It's it's the it's underneath it all. It's or the umbrella over it, whatever. Uh, it, so it's all all in the same package. And then I also consider the social sciences and the moral sciences to be sciences, no less. Actually, even harder than the physical sciences because there's more variables to study. And that one of the things we've been doing for centuries is running experiments. You know, we have. Every time the Supreme Court uh, has a decision, that's an experiment. We see what happens. Every gun control law in all 50 different states have 50 different gun control laws. Those are 50 experiments. We can decide which ones we want to go in which direction. Now, these are not always easy. The abortion issue you brought up is probably one of the hardest ones. Uh, and, but, but there we've been moving in more and more the direction of, of the sentience argument. That is, more and more people in the Western world think that abortion should be Ill- illegal you know, after three months because by then the, the cortex is largely in place and so forth. So, so there's some presumption of sentience. So our, our law has been moving more and more in that direction, as it has with the difference between the shooter and the hurricane. Mens rea, what's in the mind of the hurricane? It doesn't have a mind. Okay, so just to interject real quick. Can I just uh, say that we're, all this discussion, we're still in the land of is. And we're trapped. What people do or feel or say is still just describing natural phenomena, and the only way out is up. Uh, I was just going to point out, now I was, I'm, I'm quite confused about the scope of science. I didn't, I mean, I, when you're talking about science, you're referring to so many things that are not using the scientific method. I never thought that sitting in my office reading philosophy was science. That, that, well, that really changes. You should uh, broaden, broaden your thinking on this matter. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or you could be more clear. <laughs> um, here you go. Well, okay, so uh, wow. let, let's take a, an example. 
Jared Diamond's work, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, he wants to answer the question, why are there differential rates of development of, of civilizations around the globe over the last 13,000 years? You can't run any experiments. There's no lab we can do. It's called the comparative method. It's already happened. So we look to see what's already happened and analyze the data and compare across. So my favorite simple example, compare North and South Korea. They started exactly the same politically and economically in the 1950s. Now they're hugely different. Why? We can study exactly which variables make a difference. What economic systems, political systems, and so on. Which laws work, which laws don't work, and so on. We know, as social scientists, that's science. Okay, okay. we're going over time. but um, <clears throat> Great. Well, again, the quote here is, reason and the principle of interchangeable perspectives puts morals more on a par with scientific discoveries and cultural conventions. But what you just said five minutes ago was, in effect, science does include cultural conventions. It includes cultural conventions, like what moral philosophers think about and what, what other people here do and so on. It, so now, now what that really reads is, reason and the principle of interchangeable perspectives puts morals, more, uh, puts morals on a par with, cult, uh, with cultural conventions and cultural conventions because science for you doesn't require the use of the scientific method that seems to be a big problem i mean it certainly is for me it depends how you define the scientific method okay so uh, i'm talking about just just like we might not have enough time for that tonight (laughs) (laughs) it's the audience turn this could go on all night okay um so i'll start the questions um if you have questions that's your microphone not not this one so you can line up or if you're in the back and you don't want to come up front, you can go around the, the back there. But uh, I'm going to start. Dr. Navrick, you know I love you. Uh, you said nature has no moral content. How would you explain Paul Bloom's research in his book, Just Babies, that they are doing studies with these infants? They, you, you got a puppet you got a, a, a good puppet, and you got a puppet that's kind of a dick. And when you demonstrate the dick puppet to the baby, the baby has a choice to punish or reward, and invariably, almost every time, the baby punishes the dick puppet. So how would, how would that jive with nature has no moral content? Yeah, it's uh, a moral intuition that, is, uh, that has evolved, uh, as a way of promoting uh, survival of individuals within groups, uh, you're looking at the product of evolution. Evolution has no moral content to it. Uh, it's uh, um, no basis for morality. It's um, Is that a scientific conclusion, though, and not the op that you mentioned is an indication of the effects of evolution, primarily. And uh, there's no moral content to evolution. What, is, what are the priorities of evolution? As uh, 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 Richard Dawkins has emphasized, to uh, transmit as much of our genes into future generations as possible. Um, it's, it's a matter of um, looking out for your own. It has nothing to do with a cosmopolitan enlightenment humanism. It's about looking after your own. There's nothing more diametrically opposed to humanism than evolution. And that's all you're seeing in the behavior of the babies. Uh, what has worked over thousands of years in maintaining the survival of the species? Anybody else have any- 
So we have a line, and I, I just want to say that Dr. Shermer set you guys up to ask Ryan or Dr. Nichols uh, why slavery is wrong. So I hope that one of you plan to do that. Okay, what, what is your name? No pressure. Uh, my name is Maz. Okay, what's your question? Okay, <clears throat> so it goes back to the odd and is question, and also evolution and morality, basically, everything. So, <laughs> so we know after the age of enli- enlightenment that... Uh, uh, I mean, science can tell us uh, that uh, our morality is basically based on our uh, based on evolution, right? Mm-hmm. You look at you mentioned the uh, trolley problem. If you just uh, twist that um, uh, that problem a little bit and make that one guy uh, a family member, right? Kin selection, then everything changes. So, uh, so my question is. If our morality, which is from our biology, is based on upbringing, genetics, and um, circumstances, and culture, um, then how can we really uh, hold someone responsible for their wrongdoings? You mean in terms of like free will and determinism kind of thing? Right. Yeah, okay. So, um, well, I'm a compatibilist. I think we live in a determined universe, of course, but that the choices that we make are part of the, the causal net. And therefore, there are choices. One part of my brain makes one choice, the other part reads it, whatever. <laughs> uh, but it's still me, it's still my brain. So back to mens rea, you know, and the law has kind of tracked this over the centuries that intention, back to Doug's comment about intention, intention is everything. That is important. That is the difference between the hurricane and the shooter. Now, if it turns out the Vegas shooter, if he didn't blow his brains out, uh, had a tumor in his brain, like uh, Charles Whitman at the, the Texas, University of Texas shooter with the uh, you know quarter shaped all, uh, next to his amygdala, a tumor next to his amygdala. You know, oh well, okay, that was the cause of it. Uh, but there's some other cause like that. But it's still this person making that choice at some level. There's you know sort of shades of degrees of freedom, as Dan Dennett calls it. That and, and the law tracks this. The, the more degrees of freedom you have, the more we're going to hold you accountable. So, like in the Middle Ages, they used to they used to hold like an axe uh, accountable for killing you know the dog or whatever you know and put the axe on trial. We don't do that <laughs> because we've you know developed our scientific thinking about these things. So, I think people have to be held morally accountable, absolutely, and you can still do that in a deterministic framework. Well, can I ask a question? Uh, do you feel that um, intentions are? Uh, natural processes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And therefore can be uh, explained in terms of cause and effect? Yes, yes, absolutely. So wouldn't that make intention uh, just as much a natural process as the direction that a hurricane takes? Except, okay, so here I'm, I'm going to quote from your forthcoming article in Skeptic Magazine. Called, Spoiler alert. Uh, his opening epigram for this article is from the great Shakespeare, of course, Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Yeah. For there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah. Right. That's my whole point, that we are thinking animals. The difference between uh, us and lions that kill you know, instrumentally to get food uh, is that we can think about it. We can have a moral sense. So the intentional moral actions, good or bad, uh, that we can be rewarded for or punished for or, or held accountable for is part of our evolved nature. It's part of the universe. And, and I, and, and I want to talk you into going up without going supernatural. We're still in the land of is here. You're talking well, no, about what I'm we think. A, I'm making a transition from is to ought in the sense that, and once we, 
have a moral foundation, then we can we can determine what we ought to do to get to that goal. Yeah. Now, it's possible I'm wrong and that there's some moral universe where slavery is good and the Holocaust is also good, but I doubt it. Well, Perfect. I'll tell you what we ought to do is get to another question. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Go ahead. What's your name? And um, uh, My name's Justin. I'm a CSUF alumni, and Dr. Navik was actually my advisor. So. Get in that microphone. Don't be afraid. <laughs> uh, my question is primarily for Dr. Shermer, because um, I still think that um, there's a meta-ethical question here. What is morality and what is good? Um, that needs to be clarified. So if we're deriving morality from within, um, I think we could all intuit that killing others is wrong. And we can um, come up with an experiment. For example, perhaps the death penalty um, deters crime. So we can actually test this empirically, right? But whether or not the death penalty, death, penalty, death penalty is morally good or morally wrong is still an open question, regardless of what that evidence shows. So I was just curious, how can science answer questions like that, um, which, I th- which I think are a little bit more difficult? So like, yeah, how can sure. science answer? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, death penalty, abortion, I mean, these are hard issues. And I've changed my mind on these. Um, I used to be in favor of the death penalty. You know, ma- mainly in sympathy with the victims' families. You know, just and when you read about what some of these guys did, you know, the p- people on death row, you can read what they did. You know, it's it's like just you know, fire up old Sparky and <laughs> fry this guy. I mean, that's that's what I'd like to do, morally, emo- emotionally. I mean, that's our, my intuition. Uh, but but in a civil society in which we you know, we have sort of this utilitarian goal of maximizing. Um, you know our our, our well being and and, and and flourishing and so on. The death penalty does not help with that. So I've changed my mind on that for several reasons that are not important here. But basically, the the state makes too many mistakes uh, and corrupt police departments, all those kind of practical things. But but philosophically, do we want to give the state that much power? You know, having a state a rule of law is good to to squelch the self-help justice moral module we have, where we, wanna, we want justice and we're going to take it on ourselves. That leads to more violence. So it's good to have a state that says, no, no, you, we'll take care of the justice for you. But it, it can go, to, go too far. So I think we can derive something along those lines through reason and science, data, and so on. All right, next question. This is a really short mic. You can take it right out of that stand or lift the stand up, whatever. Hi, how are you? This is for Dr. Shermer. I really liked your opening statement, but I just don't understand how you could reconcile the statements of biological success of genes replicating. And at the same time, just opening with absolutes such as slavery is bad. Holocaust is wrong. And the reason I ask that is because, you know, you can look at a photograph of Thomas Jefferson's descendants, and it seemed like he was very successful with his, you know, built-in sex life and the rape of his, uh, you know, wife's half-sister, and it seemed like he passed on an awful lot of genes, and that would make him kind of successful, scientifically speaking. Yeah, I see where you're going with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my question is, you're asking us to explain to you why slavery is wrong, and it seems to me like you don't really quite have an answer yourself, and... Well, I thought I gave my answer. Why do you think it's wrong? It's not about me and what I think, but what I'm asking you is... Well, I'm curious. I don't think you could scientifically explain why slavery is wrong. And the reason I say that is if I wanted to capture you right now and castrate you and make sure you never have biological offspring Wait, ever again. <laughs> I'm serious. If Talk I wanted, about a spoiler alert. <laughs> if I wanted to do that right now, if I wanted to make sure Dr. Sherman never again passed on a gene, 
I don't understand how you could explain to me that that's wrong if I just want to make sure only my genes yeah. succeed so, to further generations. Uh, yeah, okay, a couple things. First, let's, let's let uh, Jefferson off the hook a little bit. Judging why? By, why should we let him off the hook? By, by modern standards. First but of all, why? Huh? But actually, no, the reason I'm saying that, it's I don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt. It's a side topic. No, no, but I, no, hold on. <laughs> but the reason I'm saying we should not, because it is actually a great experiment. It is, it's what you want. You want those historic experiments. You want us to analyze history, right? Because we can't run a slavery experiment for Dr. Shermer, right? So we have to look at history. We have to look at what has happened. Why should we let him off the hook? I don't understand that. Explain to me why he is not successful scientifically with having passed on so many genes. Well, for, for, first of all, it, it appears by all accounts that he had a loving relationship with the woman. So he's successful? Huh? So he's successful? Okay. I'm not going to judge Jefferson where he's successful well, why or not. not? I, don't I think his, his principles that he laid down two and a half centuries ago uh, have led us to much moral progress, even if many of the founders were rather hypocritical in their statements that all men are born equal except, except for African-American men and so forth. Um, but we're judging it by today's standards, and, and that's the point. Today's standards are better. We've gotten better at discovering things that uh, make uh, flourishing and survival and flourishing of more people in more places, and that's the expanding moral sphere. So, But how would, you, how, would you scientifically, yes, would, how would you scientifically explain away my desire to enslave you right now? How would you actually, well, how would you actually convince me not to? Well, the principle of interchangeable perspectives. Just as you would not want me to enslave you, I don't want you to enslave me. But so I don't want to live in a society okay. where you could do that to me because I don't want to do that to you and vice versa. That's the principle of interchangeable perspectives. Yeah. So that is literally your explanation of why slavery is wrong. Yes. Because you don't want to be enslaved. And, and, and you don't want me to enslave you. Well, either. you don't know that. But that's the interesting thing. You actually okay. don't know that. No, but okay. I'm serious. But you actually I'm, have I'm no way of knowing that. I'm pretty confident that most people would not want to be enslaved. What, you, why you, do you think that? You that, can just ask them. But, but they will I, tell you. I asked you, and your only response is that because you believe I don't want to be enslaved. I think we're going to have no, to get to the next No, because I don't question. want to Excuse be either. Me. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's it. Um, yeah, the golden rule is an awfully strange rule for this very reason. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Uh, so if you do like S and M, then you want that done to. So you should do that to other people. No, the golden rule is. Well, you ask first. Me, but, um, that's not. That's not the right moral principle for us to. Work. I just wanted to get us to the next question, though. So please go right ahead. Uh, I have a question that kind of touches on Dr. Nichols' last point um, for you, Dr. Shermer. Um, in this, <laughs> you got juked. Um, in this era of misinformation and fake news, I'm just wondering how you can verify what information or evidence can justify your scientific validation of morality when we loosen that definition. Doesn't any evidence justify any type of morality? Um, don't we need that scientific method to kind of serve as at least a base guideline for how we so. can verify can evidence? An, can, you it, can you give me an example? I mean, you can, you can do a Google search and find scientific evidence proving to you that the world is flat. Um, oh, I but see. But we know okay. for a fact that right. that is not yes, true, yes, yes, so yes, we I need see. some kind yes. of yes. some kind of meter here. Yes, I, I, I think the idea of scientific consensus is a good idea. Because, uh, yes, of course, online you can find any goofy thing. But, but, but note, like, on that particular uh, matter of consensus, it's not a democracy. Climate scientists just don't get together in a room like this and vote and, and see how everybody feels about the climate. You know, the consensus is the, is the counting up of the number of papers whose conclusion was that global warming is real and human cause. That's what we mean by consensus, not that we're voting on it. Yeah. If I may follow up on yeah. that matter, 
do we have scientific consensus that science proves morality exists or that science can prove a certain type of morality one way or another? Uh, well, I, I'd say I, I, some of us are working on it. <laughs> uh, again, there, uh, you know, people like myself, Pinker, Sam Harris, you know, we're in the minority for sure. And I'm not talking about religious, you know, the divine command theory. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about secular philosophers uh, and scientists who mostly agree uh, uh, with, with you and, and with Ryan and Doug. Thank you for your question. Next, what is your name and what is your question? Uh, my name is Omar. Um, you want to get in the mic? Oh, sorry. Hold on. First, I got distracted by the previous question because, like, the Earth being flat—that's not—that wouldn't be scientific evidence because under peer review that wouldn't hold up using you know basic math. Anyway, um, thank you for that. No, seriously. Do you do you feel like because you keep talking about you know? Um, nature doesn't show um, morality or like um, you know the the golden rule and stuff it seems to me like a lot of what we call moral behavior would just be explained by empathy human empathy and like if you look at instances like um, like the Christmas truce of World War One, where once people you know on both sides talked to each other and the enemy was humanized they didn't want to kill each other anymore but the previous day, you know, they wanted to kill each other. So it seems like a lot of our moral choices and um, moral behavior is tied to empathy and how we view other people and if we view them as people, you know, how, our, our opinion of them. Yeah. Yeah, on this, I would recommend Paul Bloom's latest book, Against Empathy. Uh, not that he, he doesn't like it. It's just that there's a dark side to empathy. The more empathetic you are to your fellow in-group members, if you're threatened by an outgroup, the more uh, violent you will be toward the outgroup because you are so bonded with your fellow uh, group members. But that doesn't that doesn't sound like empath. That's like some to me. That sounds like a separate thing where you can if you because if you really were empathetic, even if it's another group, you wouldn't necessarily view them as another group because you'd still view them as people. But the fact that you don't view them as people shows that you're not you know empathetic enough to actually say that you just say okay these are the others and then their you know actions and behaviors to them or to you are just others yeah so the expanding the moral sphere is to include more and more people as honorary friends and family and group members so you don't want to kill them and that's what we've been doing for centuries not willy-nilly in a very directional progressive way uh in, in which you can actually track the progress that we have so i, I think if you want to think about em empathy that way, expanding moral sphere to include more people that we're empathetic toward in, in the good way, then yes, I would agree. The yeah. empathy is part of well, morality. What yeah. I mean is, so we have empathy, you know, empathy is a human human trait, and ex stuff like expanding the moral, sp moral sphere, to me that's separate uh, from empathy in the sense that, um, you know, that's, that's more related to like, for instance, now we have more technology, we can contact people across the world. The world, thanks to you know freedom of information, the world it seems a lot smaller, and it's a lot easier to um, to it's easier to to empathize with you know different people than it was back in like the medieval ages and stuff. But it, do do you feel like maybe empathy, since it's already built into us, that that's the driving force behind our moral behavior, and then the fact that the moral field gets it gets expanded. That's just you know related to empathy is, the society just, we're is in. just one of the tools. You know, reason is another one. We can reason our way to figuring out what's the right thing to do, 
and we do this all the time. All right, next question. And going forward, we're going to keep it to one question. All right. <laughs> well, we're just running out of Yeah. Um, what is your name and what is your question? My name is Nicholas. Um, Nicholas. Yes, yes. Um, Dr. Navrick, uh, you said that the only way to get out of the is-ought problem is up. Um, what might self-replicating androids with sophisticated artificial intelligence conclude about their own morality 10,000 years from now when they're sitting on the stage and we're all long gone? <laughs> Our overlords. Thank you. They're, they're machines is what they would conclude, uh, just like, uh, uh, like, like us, uh, except for the added dimension that uh, the evidence indicates that we have uh, a non-material origin. The androids have a material origin. Uh, the evidence indicates that uh, life was willed. The initial cells were willed. And uh, those initial cells then uh, grew and evolved and diversified into the countless life forms uh, that have developed over the last four billion years. Uh, that would be the fundamental distinction between android machines and human machines. Evolution in itself is a mechanical process, but the evidence points to uh, an intention behind evolution. It's a very efficient way of creating what uh, Darwin uh, referred to as uh, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful. So we are, the evidence indicates, the products of that original intention. And uh, the androids could never make that claim. Awesome. Next question. Hello. Uh, my name is Scotty. Um, I just wanted to say that I think that it's great that we can uh, debate these issues in public and in peace. I think that we're actively uh, taking part in uh, uh, moving um, our, our, our moral uh, intuitions forward. Um, having said that, uh, I do have a question um, about the uh, grounding morality in evolution and biology. Um, with the advent of uh, gene editing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and kind of the resurgence of Lamarckian evolution with the, uh, uh, with, uh, based on uh, epigenetics, right? Um, it, it seems plausible that we could have basically an infinite amount of uh, different biological organisms that could have different um, biologically based moral intuitions. And if they do, then doesn't that kind of discount uh, what you were suggesting as far as having uh, moral values be uh, these ontologically objective kind of uh, objects? Um, and that's kind of it. Thank you. Yeah, boy. Okay, so, yeah, could we engineer in morals yes i think i think we could in that sense uh, if we figured out what the you know genomic sequence was related to moral behavior uh so for example we know the prefrontal cortex uh is deeply involved in self-control of impulses that are bubbling up from the amygdala for example in the limbic system and the people that have a low functioning prefrontal cortex are more violent you know, they act out on their impulses where you and I count to 10 before we act out and do something stupid. Uh, if we knew what the cause was of some people to develop their prefrontal cortex more than others and there was some genetic-related 
not to that instead of you know brain damage or whatever, then yeah, we should do that. Thank yeah, you. I know that's crazy. But Next question. Bring it on. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amanda. Um, Dr. Navrick, I have a question for you. Uh, you talked a lot about um, intention behind light. Get and- right in that microphone. <laughs> <laughs> you talk a lot about intention behind light and behind evolution. Um, it sounds to me as a theistic evolutionist, uh, are you referring to some kind of deity or who or what intended all those things to happen? Uh, in, in Skeptic, a, few year, a couple of years ago, in, in several articles, I developed... Um, a construct of um, of a god uh, with uh, a minimalist construct uh, with just the essential features that it's non-material, it's creative, and it has intention without any religious ideologies uh, going along with it. And with just those minimal uh, properties that can be tested in ways that I discuss in those articles. Uh, we can make tremendous moral progress. Uh, it opens doors. Once you uh, acknowledge the possibility that life was willed, uh, you can ask uh, what natural processes that flowed from the, those original life forms um, were intended. So over the billions of years since that of Life forms have um, diversified and grown. And just from that fact, you can support uh, a fundamental principle of humanistic theory. It's the form of um, self-actualization that uh, Carl Rogers wrote about, which um, is the basis of person-centered therapy, which he got from... Uh, the uh, psychiatrist and uh, neuropsychologist uh, Kurt uh, Goldstein in the 1930s in his book The Organism, where Goldstein said, the tendency to actualize as much as possible the organism's individual capacities and the only drive by which the life of an organism is determined. In other words, the same uh, drive that forces uh, a weed up through a crack in the sidewalk uh, drives us to become the kind of person we feel we were intended to be. There is intent behind this universal feeling that we need to become who we feel we really are, to exercise our capacities. But it has nothing to do with sentience, specifically. That's just our reaction. But Doug, why can't that just be built into the laws of nature? And and even if we don't know what the source of the laws of nature are, that they're just built in a certain way that stars do what they do, mountains do what they do, animals do what they do. The intention is built into the laws of nature, and we'll just stop right there at the epistemological wall and say, we don't know what the source of the laws of nature are that lead to progress or non-zero games or whatever. Because the laws of nature have no purpose. Evolution has no vision of the future. It has, it's just a mechanical process. What gives uh, law, natural law, moral authority is the intention behind it. 
uh, as Jefferson wrote, we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. He didn't say we are endowed by natural laws with these rights. And in the case of self-actualization, you can uh, deduce applications. Why is slavery wrong? Objectively speaking, because it denies individuals the opportunity to grow and become who they have the potential to be. That's an objective basis for arguing that slavery is morally wrong. It's not what people here or there may say about it. You're making my point, aren't you? No, I'm saying that what people feel or say about any issue is still uh, a natural process. Well, yeah, we're the, okay. we're running short here, and we we want to meter meter it out pretty well. So, what, what's your name? and What's your question? For whom? Uh, Adriana, I am a alumni, and my question is for Dr. Shermer. Um, Nichols brought up the fact that for morality, there isn't really a like a meter that says you're more moral than one person or you're less moral than another. And you compared the cell and biology example in regards to DNA and the way in which people are innately moral. But how does that really compare? Because so a cell can be anything from plants or humans or animals that it like turns into be. But a cell's job is to grow into something else and that's their potentiality. But how is a person's job to be moral? Like how is their potentiality to be moral? That's, That's a really good question. I think I would give Doug's answer. Uh, you know, you don't agree with him. Well, I, I, I swear he just agreed with me. But uh, he said it from an objective standpoint. I mean, he's standpoint. going up just one more step than I would go. You know, the laws of nature were granted to us by some willful, intentional whatever. You don't even need to call it a god, I guess. Um, but I, I would just stop one, one, one step short of that and say it's built in for us to do that, to be self-actualized. Just like the star has to convert hydrogen to helium, we have to do certain things to be self-actualized. And, that, and so that, that, that leads us to uh, do certain actions that we consider moral or immoral by that standard. I would say that doesn't make it moral. We're, we're driven by nature to do many things. Uh, we eat, we drink, we urinate, we defecate. Those are not moral uh, Yeah, of actions. course. Of course, not everything is moral. Right, yeah. But you are somewhat saying that they are. So when based in other cultures where they grow up completely different from the United States, the same thing that we think is moral may not be the same thing that they think is moral. Well, yes, that, that's correct. Yeah. So back to my analogy of, of, you know, we're all born with the capacity to learn a language. Which one you learn depends on which culture you're in. So we're all born with the capacity to be moral or immoral. Uh, and the particular things you uh, feel guilty about doing or whatever may vary in details from culture to culture, but there's certain universals that are, are across the board that evolutionary psychologists have been writing about for decades now that just come up over and over and over in all cultures. Just like it's universally understood that we have to end at nine. So next question. We're only going to get two more questions, very brief answers, and then we're going to go to closing statements. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Okay, my name is Alex Yu, and I'm nobody. Uh, my question is uh, to all you guys. Uh, suppose... Uh, I need money uh, to support my children to attend uh, USC, okay? And I sell my organs, let's say my kidney or my liver, to a patient in China who needs uh, a, you know, an urgent transplant. So I save a patient. He is happy. I have money to support my children to attend USC. They are happy. There's no victim. 
or you know, uh, let's say uh, a brother and a sister want to have sex, uh, they agree, and uh, they did everything you know uh, to avoid having a baby. They're happy. There's no victim. Can you use uh, science, religion, philosophy, whatever, to uh, judge whether this uh, victimless situation is immoral? Okay. Thank you. Wow. Okay, that's a. That's a do you want to? <laughs> Oh, sorry, I haven't talked in so long, I forgot how, no. Um, yeah, that's a great example. It comes up in the work of the Jonathan Haidt. So if you're curious about that, you could read some of his work, H-A-I-D-T. Um, and he shows that, uh, he calls it moral dumbfounding. Um, so he goes up and asks people questions like that. If a, if a brother and sister were to have safe sex, um, is that wrong? And people always say, Yuck! That's wrong, and they're challenged. To, they're challenged by the researchers. He trained these psych researchers to be very philosophical and and challenge their pushback. Oh, so you think it's wrong because we might have a kid? But I told you we're 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 having say so the condom I break. No, well I've got tubes tied. So he, for every objection, he had an answer, and they st- they couldn't be convinced that it was ever not wrong, which shows which shows some recalcitrance in our in our moral faculties. Because, as you say, that's a victimless crime. Another one uh, that always gets the laugh is masturbating into a chicken. Um, <clears throat> but you'll have to see his book for that one. Um, so, so I take it your question is, how can science prove that that's wrong? And that's a, that's a great question. It, it, yeah, it doesn't seem to prove that it's wrong. Um, but it, it's, at the same time, uh, we have universally have these intuitions that that is extremely wrong. So for those who think that science can't explain morality, that is another very tough nut to crack. All right, thank you. I'm going to get right up on the mic here. Um, and apologize, I'm not the best with names. Um, so stage left right here. I'm very curious about the, uh, the poker chip dollar bill study you mentioned earlier. Uh, it seems the overwhelming majority of people will behave a little bit more selfishly, amorally, when nobody's watching. But when they know they're being experimented on, when they know they're being watched, uh, you know, maybe they'll adapt, behave a little bit more um, altruistically. Was there any evidence uh, to the contrary? And is there anything to be learned from these sort of outlier situations? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, um, <clears throat> thanks for that. So when people are being watched, they behave uh, much more um, uh, m- much more in the way that you would ex- expect them to behave. Um, so their, their responses are socially desirable, but we have to think further as to whether or not their responses are moral. Now, in, in much of the evidence in Dr. Shermer's book, those kinds of responses are regarded as moral. If someone, if someone does something that's socially desirable because other people are watching, and it's therefore in their self-interest to do that thing, um, that's regarded as moral. And I want to suggest, given the Ring of Gaiji story, if you remember, um, that it's, it's, not, it's, it's morality-like. It's certainly not bad, but it doesn't get us to the heart of morality. So there have been. A, so you asked about um, other studies that might be relevant for this, and there have been a number of them. Um, so one that's that's got lots and lots of citations is a very simple eye spot study. Um, so at, at a college, um, one week people were asked to pay as much as you wanted for getting your own coffee and muffins. They tally up how much people paid, and the next week everything is the same except. On the, on the bucket where people put their money, there were two eye spots. And it turns out that there's a very significant increase in the amount of money people paid for, self, self-paid for their coffee and muffins, um, which is an indication that being watched is, is probably a significantly better predictor of people's behavior than is anything about their internal moral states. Um, did I get that question right? I think, okay. Awesome. All right. Um, so now, uh, final statements. Three minutes each. Wait for the our guru of time. Ryan? 
Okay, thanks. Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, so first point, if, if we're talking about, oh, gosh, why is slavery wrong? I, you challenged me to answer that, and that wasn't asked, but I can't look like an ass. So, um, yeah, slavery is obviously wrong. If you're, if, you're, if you're an adherent of any moral theory, it's going to be wrong. The consequentialist would say that it's wrong because it creates massive amounts of pain and suffering for lots and lots of people. So it's, it's kind of a non-question. As that came up, the, the, it came up in the context of how science proves it wrong. As I quoted from Dr. Shermer's book, the suggestion here is that science is on a par, sorry, morality is on a par with science, insofar as just as science proves, just as Galileo might prove uh, uh, something about the motions of the, the moons of Jupiter, so science proves that certain behaviors are immoral. Does it? So I want to conclu- conclude by suggesting that we haven't heard great evidence to think that science does that. It, science does not successfully prove that certain things are immoral. Um, and this is, one, this is one way that it doesn't. Um, the, but the big challenge looking forward to being more positive about it what, does, what do we know about people who are heroically altruistic these are the people who are capital M moral they're not moral light they're not the people who are self-interestedly not stealing from a neighbor because they're going to get caught and go to jail these are the people who are sacrificing their lives for other people that's the pinnacle of morality and these are the people we should aspire to be um, and we don't know what does that in fact the big challenge for those who advocate that science can't explain morality uh, is, is tackling what's going on there. We know about kin selection. So when, when one animal sacrifices itself for, kin, uh, for its kin, say you're a belding squirrel and you see a, a bird of prey above, well, we know from s- several studies that the, the most likely time when a belding squirrel is going to make that warning call is when its kin are present. Um, if, it's, if it sees the bird of prey and it's non-kin are present, it does not make that warning call. That's kin selection. So here we have a case of our genes, their genes, predicting what they're going to do. Who are they going to save? They're going to save people who have copies of their genes inside of them. But that's not that moral. That's just, if you see what I mean. What would be moral is when someone sacrifices themselves for someone who's totally unrelated. Um, that's what we would like to study. But notice, that defies all kinds of evolutionary psychological rules. It's not a case of kin selection. You're dying for someone else. It's not a case of reciprocity. You will never have, you've just scratched their back, but they are never scratching yours because you're dead. Um, so how, so if, we, if we want to pose the question in an important way, as if it really matters, in a challenging way, it's, it's this. How does science explain that kind of moral, capital M, moral behavior? And to that, we don't have much of an answer. But can science explain why we all maintain our enlightened self-interest and why we're not going to steal from one another here? Of course it can. But that, folks, is like shooting fish in a barrel. Have my views uh, changed? Uh, My Original position, uh, I feel, is uh, even more uh, supported by the conversations uh, we've had, uh, because most of what we've been talking about are causes and effects, causes of of moral judgments or what we are thinking uh, are moral courses of action, altruism, and so on, and uh, this is... These are all natural processes. They don't get us beyond issues of what is. Uh, The only way to break out of this trap uh, of the land of is is to find a way up. And uh, historically, uh, this has been accomplished primarily through uh, religious traditions and philosophy. 
but in my God Construct articles in Skeptic, I uh, outline another path up, a scientific path that uh, adheres to all the standard rigorous strategies and considerations of science. And when you look at evidence uh, bearing on the origin of life, was it random or was it will? It clearly points at this stage in the direction of a willed origin. That has revolutionary uh, implications for our understanding of what is right and wrong. Uh, yeah, as, as Ryan pointed out, uh, the, who's to say whether uh, the creator of the original life form deserves to be respected? Uh, whether that is a source of, uh, uh, that is a good moral standard? Uh, my view is um, there's no other moral standard available uh, beyond human judgments. And it's in our interest to uh, understand what was intended. Uh, Self-actualization self resonates. It's fundamental in humanism. And uh, seeing it as the product of an intention gives it greater moral force. There's a basis for arguing that we need to encourage um, growth, development, and diversity among all individuals. Rather than suppressing, we need to uh, facilitate the expression of the underlying potential the diversity that exists among us. I, I think our, our feeling is, our sense, like with uh, among so many religious people, is that for there to, to be real morality, there has to be something outside of us, an Archimedean point from which we can lever in moral principles. And of course, for religious people, this is God. Now, Doug, I realize you're, you're not in that category exactly, but... You're kind of deducing that in a way that I think we don't need to go that far. I think uh, um, it, it could be a transcendent principle that's outside of you and I as individuals, outside of us as a culture. Uh, uh, it's part of what we inherit as part of our species, this moral sense that we have of right and wrong that you're born with, that... Paul Bloom's babies, you know, at six weeks, they already have a sense of right and wrong. Um, and, and, and so that is, that's the best we can do, short of a God, uh, is that we get this by uh, virtue of being born human. Uh, and that's transcendent, because it's not up to me and you. It's it, sort of the moral relativist position. Anything goes. It's your opinion, my opinion. No, no. No, no, there's something outside of us. Well, it's culture. No, no, I'm talking about something even outside of culture, you know, that's in our nature. Uh, that's as good as I can do, I, I, I can give you. <laughs> there's, there's nothing outside of that. That's it. And I think it's good enough. Uh, and I think it's, it's science that gives us that worldview. 
And um, again, I guess I should reemphasize what I, you know, I'm using the word in a very broad sense, in the same sense that the Enlightenment philosophers, uh, Jefferson and Locke and, and Franklin and Paine, these guys, we, today they would be scientists. That word didn't exist in their time. They were natural philosophers, but they were doing science in that sense of trying to figure out what's really true. And again, they, you can discover certain things about how best we should live by this criteria of survival and flourishing of individuals in the same sense that I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want it. This is what Lincoln's argument was, that I would not be a, a slave. I do not want to be a slave owner. That's as foundational as it gets, and it works. It's, it, 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 and it builds from there. Granted, death penalty, abortion, you know, th- these are hard problems that I'm not saying science by itself you know, some experiment or whatever. But in addition to Rawls and Kant and Hume and Aristotle and so on, let's throw some science in there and see if we can push it even further. And from that, I think we can bend the moral arc of the moral universe even further toward justice. Thank you. Thank you to Drs. Nichols, Shermer and Navrick. Uh, now we're going to move outside, and there's free refreshments. Um, just to let you guys know, Dr. Shermer's book, The Moral Arc, will be on sale, and proceeds for that purchase will uh, be donated to Cal State Fullerton's Student Assistance Fund for Emergencies, Project Safe. So don't congratulate yourself too much on the donation because you are going to get something out of it. Um, <laughs> and I think you have a... Yeah, and then the other thing is if there's, a, if there's something that you missed or you didn't hear quite right, if you're texting to your grandma about something really great, um, this is going to be... This audio is going to be available, available, shameless plug, here on my podcast, I Doubt It with Dollamore, with Brittany. And then also I'm going to put it on my YouTube channel. Just search my dumb name, Jesse Dollamore. And... Uh, You'll find it. So uh, we'll be out there very, very soon. Thank you guys for coming. We appreciate you very, very much. Thank you.